we'll look at Matthew chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse 13. Let's pray. Um, Father, we do uh, thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, as we continue uh, through the gospel of Matthew, Lord, I ask that you would, Lord, that you would help us uh, to navigate this, this passage. Lord, help us to understand in context uh, what, what is happening here. And Lord, the, uh, that we would see the implications, the challenges uh, that Christ posed um, to, the, to the disciples, to the young rich ruler. Uh, Lord, that you would help us to see, Lord, the principles that apply to our life. Lord, we, um, we desire to grow closer to you, Lord. Um, we ask that you would speak to us uh, through your word and by your spirit. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you uh, for the story that is unfolding before our eyes. Uh, Lord, I pray um, that you would help us to um, help us to understand how to handle uh, wealth and uh, resources that we have and, and keeping you at the center of our lives. Um, Father, this is a difficult thing. And Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord. Um, help us to honor you uh, with all that we have, with all that we are. And may we grow to know you uh, ever close, closer this day. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the story here is, is transitioning to sort of catch us up to speed. Um, uh, last week, 
the, sto- we, the story was up at Capernaum, up at, by the, the Sea of Galilee, the disciples. Jesus has been ministering up there for, for really most of the time uh, of, of the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, he, he departs uh, the Sea of Galilee to make his way down to, to this region, somewhere down here um, in the southern part of Israel. Uh, it was, it, this is the last time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus would really, that he leaves the Galilee. He's heading to the cross. Time is sort of slowing down. Uh, this was one of two trips that they would make uh, to Jerusalem every year. There were three festivals that you would do each year. Um, but two of them, this one that they're going on, uh, around this time of year, they would go down for Passover. They'd stay the 50 days. And at the end of the 50 days, there was the um, Pentecost, the celebration of Pentecost. And then they would travel back home and they'd come back in the fall to celebrate Sukkot or the, the, the feast of um, tabernacles. And so their whole community headed down this way on the east side of the Jordan to uh, sort of a, avoid the region of Samaria. Today's story picks up uh, where we left off last week. Last week, we, we learned that when they were right about this in this area, uh, Jesus, um, a, a number of people had been coming to him, a number of people had needs. Jesus had been healing all of the people of, of, of their infirmities, the things that they were struggling with. It was sort of just a blip in the text. But when they get down to the southern part of the region, some, some Pharisees entered the scene. They had been trying to uh, test Jesus. They'd been trying to sort of uh, pickle him uh, so that the crowds would get upset. And they, they ask him an explosive question. And they say, is it, is it true that do you believe that for any reason a man can divorce his wife? Now, uh, during that day and age, it was very much like our day and age. There's um, the understanding of marriage and divorce. There were, there were two sort of schools of thought. There, were, there was one rabbi who was the liberal rabbi who believed that, um, that based on the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where it said that if there is any, uh, what was the word? It was, if there was any indecency in your wife, you could divorce her and send her away with a, let, uh, a certificate of divorce. And so this rabbi, Hillel, he interpreted this very widely, that, it, that you could divorce your spouse for really, or I should say, you, a husband could divorce his wife. Uh, it wasn't a two-way street uh, for any reason. Um, if she burned your food, that was, that was reason enough for divorce. If you found a prettier woman, that was reason for divorce. And now the other rabbi, rabbi, I think his name was Shemuel, he had a very conservative understanding of this indecency. He understood it as... Um, infidelity, any, any act that would have violated the, the sexual union of the marriage. And so they ask him this question, knowing um, that the crowd supported the liberal one. That, that, was, that was the predominant thought. The, lib, the conservative guy had very few, the, his followers were much smaller. And so they come to Jesus and they ask this question about divorce. And so they're hoping that Jesus is going to answer to the conservative way, and thus creating a sort of a, a schism amongst uh, those who were following Jesus, that the crowds would turn on him, uh, that they would maintain their support. Jesus then goes on to, to explain not about divorce, 
but about marriage. And he goes, he goes back beyond the law and he goes to Genesis and he goes to the creation of marriage and he says that a, a, a God created man and woman to be married, that what God has joined together, let no man separate, gives a very conservative um, answer uh, dealing with the sort of what is marriage. And then they probe deeper and then Jesus gets into some sort of uh, you know, that if there's infidelity, that, that out of the hardness of man's heart, there were sort of, um, th- there were uh, allowances for divorce, not that it was God's ideal. And so in the very midst of this, this strained conversation, this, this conversation that, that comes with uh, pain and, and difficulty and, and emotion, uh, they're interrupted. In verse 13, there were some children brought up to him. And so the picture is that there were some parents who brought their children to Jesus, um, the the desire to have him pray for them, to have them lay their hands on him, to sort of uh, dedicate them to the Lord. We see that these these parents desired their children to grow in spiritual things. And as they're bringing the children to Jesus, the disciples basically are saying, hey, get out of here. You guys are a distraction. You're you're interrupting um, the, the rabbi from teaching. They try to stop them. They try to, to get them out of there. And as they're doing this, uh, we read that, um, uh, that Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Um, after laying his hands on them, he, they, or he departed from there. And so as the disciples are trying to stop the parents from bringing the kids, they, I mean, it says that they rebuke them. Jesus says, stop, guys. Like, like children are a priority. Children, uh, he continually uses children as an object lesson to show what the heart of the disciple needs to be to gain entry into the kingdom of heaven, what the attitude of the disciple in the kingdom of heaven is to be like. And the disciples still are missing the point. And Jesus says, these kids are not an inconvenience. They're not a hindrance. They're not a distraction to my teaching. Let them come. And so he went through he prays for them, um, and then we're told he departs. So our story, we don't know exactly where it happens today. We know that they are currently in this region, uh, just north of the Dead Sea, uh, east of Jerusalem. Uh, we know that Jesus is going to move from here toward Jerusalem, so probably up by Jericho and then down into, down, or up to Jerusalem, I should say. By the time we get to chapter seven, uh, 20, verse 17, uh, we read, Uh, that leaving from today's story, um, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. So somewhere in between this region over here and the city of Jerusalem over there is somewhere in the midst of there is where today's story uh, occurs. Um, They depart. Verse 16. As verse 16 happens, we read, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may gain eternal life? Uh, so there's a couple references, Mark 10, uh, 17 through 31, and Luke 18, verse 18 to, uh, what is it, verse 30. Um, these are the parallel accounts in the Gospels of the story. This is a story that's yo- known as the young rich ruler. Uh, Matthew doesn't indicate ruler. He does indicate, uh, I believe he indicates in our story, we'll see if, 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 if he indicates young. But, but through these three accounts, I've sort of read the story. I have it in my mind. I'll be referencing things that may not be in Matthew, but that's where I got them, and you guys can do your homework. So in the other accounts, what happens is 
Here Matthew just says, and someone came to him and said, and asked him this question. In the other accounts, we see that there's this young rich ruler, that this, this, he's a young man, that it's almost like he's running towards Jesus. As he approaches Jesus, he goes down onto a knee and sort of postures himself in humility before Jesus. And he asks this question. This, this really is a timeless question. This is a question that is of the utmost importance. It's a question that I believe that, that every single human being wrestles with. This man has everything. He has wealth. He has property. He's a ruler. He has authority over people. And yet within him, he knows that he's lacking something. And he asks them, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? It's fascinating to me. I am. Um, we have chickens. We have one rooster. It's driving me crazy. Grace has named him. I cannot get rid. I'm not sure what to do with him. This is. <laughs> She's made me promise that we can't eat him. And that we can't kill him. I'm like, Grace, you've been doing duck hunting. You handle duck, dead ducks. She's like, yeah, but it's not my rooster. And so this, um, where was I going with this? I, uh, <laughs> chickens, they, like I look at these animals, they don't seem to wrestle and contemplate deeper things like where they're, uh, where they're going in the afterlife. Uh, whether or not he goes to the afterlife soon or not is still on the table. Um, shh, really guys, like don't <laughs> say anything. Uh, uh, then I have my dogs who are a little bit smarter than the chickens but they don't seem to sort of wrestle through like eternal things, what happens to them like really beyond this very moment. Um, there's something about us as humans, a- every human deep within them. When we lay our heads down on our beds at night, we start to grapple with issues about like, we understand that we were born. Like what, what was I before I was born? Like what happened? Like I understand history. Like I understand before uh, the, the date that I entered into sort of human history, I understand that a whole lot was going on beyond that. But I have like, I, I, I can't, I wasn't there. I can't fathom it. What, like where was I? But I know that I exist now. And I know that one day I'm going to die also. But what, what happens to me after that? that? There's something within us that tells us as humans that death just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. Uh, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so we were created with sort of uh, this understanding, this imprint on our minds and the, the deepest parts of our, our understanding that, 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 that we were never created to die. And so when we were faced with death, there has to be something beyond And so this young, rich ruler who has everything comes to Jesus and he asks one of the most important questions that any human being could ask. He understands with his uh, limited understanding that there has to be some eternal life. There's life beyond uh, what we see and feel and touch here. There's a void within him that none of his stuff can fill. And he asks the question, what do I need to do to obtain this thing that I'm lacking, this eternal life? Um, the powerful question. And so Jesus responds in verse 17. 
And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? Now, the other accounts kind of, you know, some of the other accounts kind of make it out to, um, they, he approaches Jesus with good teacher. Jesus says, why do you call me good? And, and here, the, the indication is, what good thing do I have to do? I think there was probably, both of these were, were a factor. This, um, I want to guard myself from saying this, or, or I'm going to catch myself from saying this, but this was a, quote, unquote, good Jewish young man. Uh, th- this was an individual that seemed to care about spiritual things. He seemed to honor God with uh, the, the revelation that he knew. We'll see that he kept the commandments to the best of his ability. Um, he's, he's going out of his way as a young man. This was not me searching after God. But, but here's this guy with all of these resources and still he humbles himself in front of these great crowds to go chase down this rabbi. He bows before him and he asks him, basically, what do I got to do to gain eternal life? And, and I'm, I'm assuming that there was nervousness, anxiety, excitement, all of these things sort of going through his mind as he's approaching this Jesus who was very, very famous and very well known that the crowds are going to. And now he has his moment before him. And I think that Jesus is stopping him, slowing him down, forcing him to think about the questions that he's asking. He says, well, why, why do you call me good? What, 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 what do you mean by good? Don't you know there's only one who is good? And as we sort of correlate uh, all of the stories about this, it seems that Jesus is stopping, like, hey, there's a lot of rabbis out here, and I'm not just one amongst the rabbis. I'm not just a good ethicist. I'm not just a good uh, spiritual man that can kind of help you navigate things to, to, to live well. He's saying, listen, there's only one who is good. Only God truly is good and free of defect and sin and and any sort of fault. Now, nowhere does Jesus then say, listen, so you can't attribute goodness to me. Jesus acknowledges, like, listen, it's okay to use this title with me, but I just need you to understand what you're saying. You're coming before me as the Messiah, and I am the Messiah. I'm the promised one. I am God in flesh. So he sort of asks that question. Why, why, why are you asking me about what is good? Slow down, young man. Start thinking. I want you to think and examine your words. He goes on to say, there is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. And I see this young man sitting there and for some reason this week for for those, you guys see this movie, City Slickers? Anybody here? I love City Slickers. Okay, Dave in the back saw City Slickers. It's about these city guys who go onto this, like, they want to, like, herd cattle for the summer. It's to get to the, their country roots. And then there's this guy, this old cowboy guy who's tough that doesn't speak a lot named Curly. And Curly's like, there's one thing. And I think the guy died before they ever got the one thing out, like the whole thing. And the guys are like, like Billy Crystal's like dying to like understand what this one thing, this one bit of wisdom is. And here I see Jesus as this guy's like bowed before him. And he's like, why do you call me good? Then right away he says, you want this life? Just follow the commandments. So here I see this guy kneel before Jesus. Just follow the commandments. Like if you count all the commands in the Old Testament, you'll count 613 commands. This is sort of uh, what, what, what Israel today, the Jews today, 
They, they acknowledge that there are 13, 613 instructions, so much as like their national fruit is the pomegranate, and they claim that there are 613 little pomegranate seeds in a pomegranate. I've never actually split one open and done the math, like actually counted. Um, so I think that they know there's so many seeds that nobody's actually going to do the math on that. But, but, but so he's like, there's 613. Some of them are like, you know, like if you go to war, bring a shovel with you so that you can use a latrine sort of thing. Like there, there's some that, that are not really commands that are, that are big deal commands or in, in my mind. Um, then there are others that are significant. And so this guy, when he says, well, just keep the commands, he says to him, which ones? I want this life. Like, which, which ones? Like, what do I need to do? Because clearly I'm keeping a lot of the commandments, but I'm still falling short of this eternal life. I know that I don't have what you're offering, and I need to understand what this eternal life is. How do I obtain it? And I love Jesus' teaching. I love that Jesus teaches in a way that to the one that he's addressing, he does it in a way with the most profound impact that, that by the end of this, the, the people are like either like decimated or they, they understand that there's nowhere else they can go. As Jesus rattles off of these commands, we're going we're gonna to see six... To, six yeah, six, I had it. I'm like, I want to make sure that thumb was down. Uh, you guys, it's funny. It's okay. So there's four negatives that, are, that come from the, uh, the Ten Commandments that we know. There, there's four negative ones, four that you're not to do, and then there's two positive ones. Um, uh, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your parents. And I believe that what he's doing is I, I'm... I, I'm imagining a dentist. You know how a dentist takes a little pokey thing? I'm sure there's a, a, a name for it. But they go around and they start poking your mouth and your gums. And they say, let me know when it hurts. And I'm like, how's that? I'm like, you guys, you're stabbing my gums. Like, of course it's going to hurt. It's like, no, 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 you'll know if it really hurts. Like, you'll know. And I, I remember it was about 10 years ago. I have two crowns in the back. I was eating a salad and there was a, an olive with a pit in it. So I eat the olive. I, when I got to the pit, I went ahead and put it on the edge of the plate. My, my new policy is now when I eat olives, that just goes on the table. I don't even mess around because the olive seed made its way back into the salad and back into my mouth, and I bit down, and I, I, it seemed like I broke two teeth. Like, it was pretty miserable. And I remember going to the dentist, and I'm like, I don't know which one it is, but I bit this olive seed, and, I, and so he starts, well, I'm just going to start tapping around in there. You just let me know when it hurts. And he tapped the tooth. I'm like, I don't think that hurts. I don't think so, but maybe it hurt. I don't know. He's like, no, you'll, you'll know. And so he's like, tink, tink, that didn't hurt. Tink, 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 that didn't hurt. Tink, 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 that didn't hurt. Tink, ah, stop. That's the one. Let's try the other one. Yeah, that's not. He's like, yeah, you're going to need two crowns. And these are not, I had no idea what crowns were at this point in my life. They're not what I thought they were going to be. So it was a miserable experience getting these crowns. And I think this is what Jesus is doing spiritually to this guy. He's going around and he's going to poke him a couple times in a way that doesn't hurt. And he's sort of setting the guy up to expose the ultimate root of the problem that this guy has. When I look at these four commands, it's striking to me, or this, the six commands that he gives. He, Jesus asks the questions or, or presents the commands that deal with the, uh, the commands that have been referred to as a quote-unquote sort of 
other commands, the ones that deal with other people. How do you treat people? He totally bypasses the first four of the Ten Commandments dealing with the relationship with God. Namely, I I think the first one, uh, to have no other gods before me is at the heart of this man's issue is that his wealth and his resources had become a God to him, had become a source of his trust, a source of his security, a source of his hope. And so Jesus is going to basically hit that first command without actually saying it. And so here's the guy, he's kneeled before Jesus. Jesus, which commands are you talking about? And so the Jesus responds, uh, you shall not commit murder. Guy right away thinks to himself, I've never murdered anybody. I've never done that. Check, I'm good. I've got that box. I've got that box taken care of. You shall not commit adultery. Scrolls through his mind. He wasn't there for the Sermon on the Mount to hear like the, the great difficulty that Jesus presented with uh, murdering and adultery. So he's like, no, 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 I've never, I've never committed adultery. Check, I'm good. You shall not steal. Oh, that, that's check. I'm so wealthy. I have, all, I have everything I need. Like, why would I steal from anybody? I, I'm worried about pe- people stealing from me. Like, I, like th- that's easy. I've never stolen from anybody. Check, okay. Three commands, I'm good. And remember, he's looking for the thing that he's not doing. He, he wants to do the thing that will get him this eternal life. And he is the one who's pro- approaching Jesus, acknowledging that everything that he's doing in his life, none of it is working. And then he says, you shall not bear false witness. Don't, don't lie, sort of in the, in the sense of the court of law. Don't, don't lie about other people. He's like, check, I've never, I've never done that. Then he says, honor your father and mother. He's like, ah, I've, I've done that one. I'm, I, I love my parents. I honor them. I, I respect them. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He had resources. I, I'm, he, he seems like he was probably a good neighbor, probably even a good employer, good, good to his people. And I... I love the integrity and the honesty and the the ability of this young rich ruler to, to analyze himself and to sort of take stock. See, Jesus didn't rattle off all the Jesus rattled off these six things, and it would have been like very easy for the guy to get up and say, "Well, I'm good to go. I have eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I'm doing all of that." But the guy understands that he's doing all of these things, but he's still lacking this eternal life. He understands that he hasn't attained this very thing that he's longing for. And Jesus, all the things that he told him to do, he knows that he's doing these things. And he says to them, this is a good young, I say good, catching myself, because there's only one who's good, but this is a a good man. This is a man with integrity. This is a guy who's... um, accurately evaluating who he is. And he says to these, he says to the Lord in front of everybody, all of these things I've still kept, but I'm still lacking something. I don't have this eternal life. I understand that you told me I need to do these six things. I've done these six things. Uh, I'm not getting assurance from doing these things. My works aren't completing this gap of something deep within me that is off. And this is the time, this is, this is where Jesus is about to hit that tooth, that it hurts so, so bad. Jesus has been setting up this guy in a good way, uh, getting the guy positioned in his heart so that he can feel the pain and the weight of his sin to know the thing that's actually keeping him from experiencing this eternal life. And so in verse 21, Jesus says to him, 
if you wish to be complete, uh, this word is, is, is teleos. It's, it's the idea of a telescope. Um, uh, the idea of a telescope is there's something that's really, really far away, and by looking through the lens, it brings something very far away, very close. Um, so you can translate this word like per- perfect, uh, completion, maturity. The, the idea is moving your life towards the end or of maturity of where you're supposed to be. So Jesus says, if you, if you want to be complete, if you want to be perfect, I think some translations render. He says, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Now I want to pause here. Um, so far he's not talking about eternal life. He says, sell everything that you have, give it away to the poor, and ultimately what you're doing is you're adding security in heaven because he's not talking about even salvation. He's saying if you, if you give all of this stuff away, your treasure, your bank account, your ultimate like 401k in heaven will be supplanted, like totally, like supplanted, that's not a word, replenished, plenished, stocked up, filled up, uh, maxed out your contributions for the year. He says, in heaven, you'll have great treasure by doing this. And then he says, and come, follow me. The very same thing he said to the 12 disciples, all of them, come, follow me. This, this seems to be uh, the, the key command of it all. This giving, getting rid of all of his wealth and giving it away, giving to the poor, that, that seems very unique to this individual because this wasn't a, a common statement that Jesus said to everybody. We, we know this because Zacchaeus, uh, who, who's coming, was a very wealthy man. Jesus said nothing about his wealth getting rid of it. Matthew, the tax collector, he was a very wealthy man. Um, these, these individuals, for them, this isn't a command that, that Jesus tells them to sort of to, to get rid of this stuff. But this man, his stuff was an idol to him. And it was the very thing that was keeping him from experiencing a relationship with God, with his Messiah, and, and receiving this eternal life. So he says, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. You're the one who came to me. You're the one who said that you're longing. You're the one who says that you're missing something. Get rid of your stuff, follow me. And I wish we had video of this. I I don't know if this young man who was so postured doing all of the right stuff, like if he stood up with tears in his eyes. But we're told that when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. So he goes from this posture of humility, desiring to hear from the Messiah. Everything right, when Jesus says us about his stuff, he stands up, I'm imagining, he says he's grieving. I imagine there's tears in his eyes. There's sorrow. Like I think that deep within him, he knew that what Jesus is saying is accurate, but it was too much for him. And, and we we're told that he went away. This is a young man. I, I have no idea. This we don't know. The scripture doesn't record what happens to him. I uh, hopefully in his life, like he was able to sort of understand the issues in his heart. That he was able to give his life to the Lord. I know that when God challenges me, when God convicts me of things, it normally doesn't happen like that. It normally, um, like I'm convicted about it. I wrestle with it. I go through them. I 
I struggle, I pray, I get mad, I talk to people, I do whatever, and then, then sometimes it's months, sometimes it's years, but then God ultimately sort of wins over my heart because we know that God is patient and long-suffering and he continues to sort of pursue us. But we don't know what happened to this man, but, but I, I, he, he's young enough that there might have been hope for him later on. I don't know, I'll wait to heaven. But this guy goes away, and as he walks away in sorrow, Jesus now addresses his disciples. And he said to his disciples in verse 23, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for, the, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, I, Jesus is saying some hard things to, to, to this rich man, to this disciple. Um, I, I, before you let yourself off the hook, because I think we wealth and, and uh, money are such relative items um, that I think it's so easy for us that when we read this, truly I say for you, it's hard for a rich man there's always somebody wealthier than you are. And so it's always, I think it's super easy for us to let ourselves off the hook. To say, oh yeah, those rich people, they, it's so hard for them like, to get spiritually minded. But, but I don't want us to, uh, off the hook. I, I believe, I, I've said this for a long time, that I believe that the, the poorest person in the United States is has to be of the wealthiest 1% of human history. Um, my number one source for facts is Wikipedia. I, you know, I could, there was nothing that I could find on, on Wikipedia, but through other sources, I started this week sort of trying to figure out, like, what's the, what's the medium, median income for a person, like, worldwide? And so the, mo- the number that seemed to pop up at a number of different places and a number of different sources was... $2,700 gross per month. Um, and it said that if you make $2,700 per month before they take anything out of it, before anything goes out, so that's, that's, that's you know, not that high of a number, you are in the top 1% of all people worldwide today. Like, that's, that's 1%, like, like $2,700. Um, if, you, if you make more than that, that percentage obviously, like, it's lower and lower and lower. Um, I, I think affirming my belief that we as Americans, we where we live today, like, we are extremely wealthy. Um, I don't think, I think that we're so wealthy, we don't even understand how wealthy we are like how most of humanity has lived over the course of their lives. And I bring this up because I don't want us to let ourselves off the hook. I don't want us to skim over this verse. When, it's, when Jesus says, truly I say to you, it was hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I um, Don't just skip over that and think it doesn't apply to you. I, like put yourself in the rich man's seat. And then the question that keeps coming up is, 
Like, like when, I, when, I ex- when you examine your life, like what, what are the things that terrify you the most about, like if God asked you to surrender them to him, what things are those? Like are, are there um, your job, your uh, like gadgets, technology, television shows, where you live, relationships, um, sports, hobbies, talent, anything. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I think of children, because children are in here. I think of my children, my young Titus. And I see kids, and if, if Titus is sitting down, he'll like, my siblings can, all of this stuff, they're welcome to it. And it's like, Titus, what are you sitting on? Nothing. It's like, but you look awfully uncomfortable there. What, what is it? Melanie knows what it is. He'd be sitting on what he calls John Trory's truck. Titus has this little red pickup truck that looks like John Trory's pickup truck, and he absolutely loves the th- I mean, this thing starts so many fights in our house that if, if anybody touches John Trory's truck, Titus gets upset. And it's like, well, Titus, you got to, like, share and so I don't know like what your John Trory truck is in your life, but I would suggest that, that we each have things that we hold on to, that we, we hold so tightly that we like, Lord, you can have anything, but this one little thing, like I just can't surrender this to you. Well, that's kind of an idol. And I remember back in 2001 sort of wrestling with this whole um, this is one of those stories that's that's diff, like that has been an on like I'd say is an ongoing struggle in my own life. Um, I, I don't know why that is, but I um, there's something about trusting God, walking by faith. Um, maybe because of the abusive childhood I had. Um, th- th- there's something that money and wealth like it's security, like it, it's it, we, we social security, right? Um, our investments, IRA, 401, like all of this stuff is, is we're trying to secure something for our future so that we can feel safe. And so back in 2001, God had really grabbed a hold of my life. I, I was in Bahrain. It was somewhere between January and June of, of 2001. And on that little Middle Eastern island of Bahrain, God was... I mean, he was putting me through the ringer. Um, Ann and I were still, we were, at the, at the time I didn't realize what was happening, but in hindsight we were like courting one another, like sort of like checking each other out, like is this somebody I want to be married with? Um, I was at sort of a, in the military was at this sort of, this, this turning point. I really felt God was calling me into the ministry, but my dad, who was a financial advisor, and and a, a number of my friends who had retired from the military, by walking away from the military and, and going into the ministry would mean that I would be walking away um, from full retirement with eight years to go, that I'd, I'd completed 12 years. I had eight years to go for full retirement. Everybody who knew, like, knew me, people who I re- respected, their input and their wisdom in my life, over and over and over again, they're like, Gunnar, do you realize that like, eight years is nothing. Like, are you sure that walking away is the right thing to do? And so I, like, I wrestled, I prayed. I'm like, God, it's like, like maybe we can do, like, like the chaplaincy and the reserves, and maybe I can do that, Lord. Like, maybe that would be, like, wise. 
And I remember through like months of wrestling with God, it, it came down to me feeling like God is saying, so the only reason you would stay in the military is because you don't trust me to provide for your needs. And I pretty much said, yes, Lord. That's exactly, that's exactly what my struggle is. And so I reached the point, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to walk away from the military. And I remember Anna's like, okay, that's cool, because I don't really want to marry a guy in the military. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And then I went a little bit farther in a deployment. And then God started like swinging the pe- pendulum the, the other way on me. He's like, okay, well, now that you're willing to like walk away from the military, are you willing to go to Bible college and seminary and stay in the military, to stay active, not as a chaplain, but to stay as a Navy SEAL and to be a missionary within the SEAL community. So then I wrestle. I'm like, Lord, didn't we just go through this whole thing about getting out and not trusting you? And I'm like, now I feel like you're like challenging me in this area to like stay in. And I remember like during that whole thing about going, okay, like, and I remember talking to Anna and saying, well, I think maybe God wants me to stay in now and to go to Bible calls and go to seminary, but then to stay within the military as as like an operator so that I can be a, a light to these guys. And I remember it was like Ann and I went through like a little breakup. Like, well, I was like, well, that's great if you're doing that, but that's not the life that God's called me to. And so it was like, okay, fine. So we kind of like went our own ways. And then after I was like, okay, Lord, if you want me to stay, and then God's like, no, I just wanted to make sure that you're willing to do whatever I want, like whatever, that you're open to whatever. I want you to, get, like, I felt like he wanted me to get out again. It's like, oh, man, you're going to make me sound like a crazy person. I'm like, I remember going down, I'm like, I don't, like, God's calling me out. Like I, I, like, I just, like, I feel like he's, like, throwing me up against the wall to where I surrender. <laughs> Lord, whatever you want, like, whatever you want, like, I'll get out. I'll do, I'll stay in. Whatever, whatever you want from me, I'll do. And so Jesus, when he talks to these guys about, for the wealthy, that it's very difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, what he's not saying is that wealthy people cannot enter the kingdom of God. All through the scriptures, there's very wealthy people who who enter in, who are used for God's word. There's all sorts of people that had all sorts of money throughout all times of history that knew and loved the Lord and presently who know and love the Lord, who who, um, use their resources as a tool for his glory. And it's not something that is a mandatory stumbling block. But Jesus paints this picture. He's like, it's so difficult. It's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so if you were there listening to Jesus say this, this is something that would make you giggle. It would cause a chuckle. Like, I don't know, like, uh, interpreters have struggled over the years. Like, what is Jesus saying? Like, is he like, how, how hard is it to, like, take a camel through an eye of a needle? Like, do we blend it up and then, like, kind of filter it through? Or some said, oh, well, there was a, there's a city gate, and of the city gate, there's, like, the big gate where animals could walk through. But, but in that door, there was, like, a little door that a person could go through, but they had to strip down all of their armor. If they had an animal, they had to take everything off so that they could sort of wiggle their way through. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the eye of the needle. That, that's not a, like, it, it can't be. That, that whole gate that they're talking about came after AD 70, after uh, Jerusalem was rebuilt. It didn't exist at the time of Jesus' teaching. This word that Jesus uses for needle is a needle that you'd use for sewing. Jesus is being funny. This is hyperbole. And, and what he's saying is, is that money in itself is not evil. Like I, There's been plenty of messages uh, about that. I, I share this often. Uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, not money's an inert object. But what Jesus is saying is that for the wealthy, there's, there's, 
there's something about wealth and resources that an individual has that creates a really hard situation for one of those people to be saved because there's this uh, the, the sin of self-sufficiency and the sin of self-reliancy that sort of hinders the person from humbling themselves before God and, and coming to understand that they have a deep, deep need. Um, it's so interesting, this whole story so contrasted back with Matthew 18, verse 3, when the disciples asked Jesus, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus basically pulls up a toddler child. And he says, unless you're converted and you become like one of these, you won't even enter the kingdom. And then he goes on to teach about the kingdom. And so when I look at a toddler, when I look at a child, there's there's no financial capacity of a child. Whether they eat, whether they play, whether they get new clothes, whether they, whatever a child has, it's because their, their parents has provided for them and cared for them. And so this man who has everything, like his stuff had become his God. And it's so easy for us to fall into the same trap. And so the disciples, they're astonished. When Jesus says this to them, in verse 25, it says, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? In their understanding, money and resources, this was all a sign of God's hand of blessing upon the individual. Those who were closest to God had the most money. The Pharisees, scribes, all of them were extremely, extremely wealthy. And so if their understanding of wealth was equivalent to God's blessing, and if Jesus is now saying that it's very difficult for the, for the wealthy, if they can't be saved, then what about us who have nothing? Like, like Nobody can be saved. And it's almost like when Jesus says this, there's great discouragement on their part. And then looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. And I want to pause there because Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say with the wealthy, this is impossible. He doesn't say with the poor, this is impossible. He says with people, this is impossible. And he's getting at the heart of the matter that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah tells us that our our best works are but filthy rags. It's impossible. This rich young ruler who's keeping all of the commands, thinking that he just, his very question gives him away. His very question says, what do I need to do to gain this eternal life? And Jesus said, there's nothing you can do. Um, Galatians, it's a typo up here unless they fix it. Galatians 3, it's not chapter 2. That was my fault. 23 and 24, Paul writes about that the law is, is a tool that God used to show us our inability for good work. Our, our, uh, we, we, it's unkeepable. And it, as you try to keep the law, as you try to maintain the law, all it serves to do is to show you that you are not, you are not able. There, there's no hope for you um, to be righteous. There's no hope for you to get into heaven on your own works. It serves as a schoolmaster, a teacher, a tutor, leading you to Christ. And Christ has done what we need to get into heaven. And this is one of the greatest buts of the Bible. I mean, I, when you see, I see buts in the Bible and it's like, okay, there's something good there. 
See, with people it is impossible, but with God, through His work on the cross, through, through His sufficiency, we can enter into this life. With God, all things are possible. Now, just a couple things to end with here. I, um, like, like, first and foremost, Christ is, is, is pointing this young rich ruler, his disciples, he's pointing them to him for relationship. He's saying, come follow me. I will provide the way for you to enter into this eternal life. It's our only way uh, to, to gain peace with God. But throughout this whole section, we can't ignore the fact that, that Jesus is teaching and explaining about wealth and resources. And what do we do as the wealthiest people really in human history? Like we are of the wealth, the, the, the poorest person in this room is, is the wealthiest in hum, like in human history. We, we are of a very elite group financially. And Jesus throughout his teaching, he speaks about money and hell more than anybody else. But money has become such a taboo subject uh, to speak on in church. As I became a Christian, I remember um, before I was a Christian, but I started going to church, my, I would kind of drag my heels, my friend that wanted to take me to church, you know, like, you know, 21-year-old 20, gunner. The church just wants my money. All they care about is my money. And I was adamant about it. I was like, I was irate. And as I look back on you know, 20-year-old gunner. I think I had about $3.23 in the checking account, and I had a whole bunch of debt and credit cards. So gunner didn't have any money that the, ba- like, the, the church could do all they wanted, but I was a dried-up turnip with no, no resources to offer. And But there I was, like, all he wants my money. Oh, no, that's not what they wanted. Um, but I think that it's important finances in our culture, wealth in our wealth management in our culture, as we've seen over the last few years, I don't believe that the average American, the average person, the average Christian has any sense of like maturity about how to handle money and how do we deal with money. Jesus tells this guy to sell everything he has walked away. I know that Jesus isn't, isn't saying that to everybody. Because money is not something like, it's not like sin that you can walk away from, that you can stop doing certain things. If you leave from here, you're going to go to lunch. If you go to a restaurant, you're not just paying them with a handshake. You're paying them with money. If you need to put gas in your car, you have to, put, you have to pay with money to get gas. Like the m- Money is something that we have to deal with. It's something that we have to know how to handle and and, and exchange with and use it. And, and, and so how do we go about managing our money? And I think at the, the, the heart of this issue, since we can't avoid money, we can't get rid of money. I think practically speaking, there's a proverb, Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, I think that sort of lay out the sort of the overarching theme for how we are to understand money. It says to honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be full with plenty and your vats will overflow with wine. And I think that the, what's being explained in that proverb is the idea of stewardship. 
that everything that we have, we recognize, came from our Father in heaven who's, who's entrusted us with a little or with a lot, and we have an obligation as the parable of the talents to sort of honor him with what we've been entrusted with. Um, like the whole idea of, of, of tithing was a radical thing to me as a young man. When I, uh, I, like I don't exactly know where I began tithing, at what stage, but it was about 15 years ago. I was in debt and I was at a church and they started talking about tithing and it just seemed like a whole like, it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but, but somewhere between like 2000 and 2002, I know by 2002, I was like, like I was committed to tithing, like I was going to tithe for the rest of my life. Something changed within me. And so I learned that as I began to tithe, what began to happen is it forced me to actually sort of evaluate my resources that when a paycheck came in, it forced me to evaluate, this is how much money I have. And I'm going to prayerfully write the check to the church for the 10%. And what that caused me to do was to, to basically give thanks to God. Lord, I thank you for, 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 this, um, for this money that you've given, this provision that you've given me. And as I began to tithe, I began to sort of see like, you know what? I'm, I'm accountable for this other 90% and recognizing the debt that I had and how it wasn't good stewardship and, and, and to realize how enslaved I was to, to debt. And I need like that through the whole process, God began to help me to see that everything I have is his and, and I'm merely managing it and I want to do it for his glory. And I'm not a like at all a a prosperity gospel guy. Like this is not at all like I'm not here even we're not taking an offering out of this. This is something I think that's important for us to understand. I do think that practically wisdom has benefits. Um, I, I love like Dave Ramsey and I love celebrate recovery and and their practical wisdom is you know you you tithe ten percent you save ten percent you manage the eighty percent for His glory. And I believe that as we do this, it says in Proverbs, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with wine. We see through the Proverbs, go to the ants, look at their example for how they manage and prepare and save. We're told in other places in the Bible that uh, it's a, a good man who leaves an inheritance to his children. So, so, so the, the Bible doesn't say money is bad. It's this inert object that creates there's a great potential for it to become your God. And I do believe that as we honor God with our money, I believe that he blesses us and he, and he provides us. He says that to whom much is given, much is required. And, and as, as you're responsible with how you manage what he's provided for you, he tells us that he trusts us with more. But see, I used to think and what the prosperity gospels think is, well, you're doing this so that you can get more and you can have a party and a blast with whatever. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that as he entrusts you with more, you're accountable for a whole lot more when you stand before him and you give an account. So with more comes more responsibility. And we as Christians are supposed to be generous and loving and kind and using our resources for his glory. It's good for us. It brings glory to him. And the issue isn't the wealth. The thing is that we hold our hands open, and in order to hold our hands open so that he can put in or take away, 
What this ultimately requires is the ultimate point of this whole story is in order to live like this, it means that we trust him. And knowing that he's our good father that will provide for us what we need. And Lord, this is a difficult thing. Lord, we understand that you are good to us. We understand that you provide for our needs. We understand these things theologically. But Lord, there's tension. Lord, as we go through our lives desiring to like honor you and to be good stewards, I, I know for me, in the trying to be responsible and wise and honoring you with the resources, it's, it's, it's such a slippery slope of placing our trust and hope and security into the stuff. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us, Lord. We are all going through different things in life. We're in different positions. Father, I pray that we would have an encounter with you, that we would so be able to trust you with our resources, with our wealth, with our gifts, with our talents. Lord, that our stuff is not where we would find our security. Lord, we know that you are ultimately the one. You provide for us. You care for us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts. Lord, help us to trust you with our lives. We thank you, Lord, that ultimately our reward in heaven a relationship with you has been provided through the work that Christ on the cross. Father, as we go through this life, as we have to use money, as we have to deal with financial things, Lord, help us to be wise. Help us to, to, to give, to save, to prepare for the future in a way that, um, that our resources don't become an idol. Lord, may you be the center of all that we are all the time. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your love for us. Father, I thank you for how good you've been to each one of us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.